Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Good morning. I'm Sarah Robinson. And let's see, our scripture reading, our scripture reading, that's better, is Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. This is Bailey, by the way. Let me see. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we are heading into Thanksgiving, I get nostalgic like I'm sure many of you do. I'm reminded of especially my trips home uh, from college when I would go to, uh, to home and uh, I would bring my clothes, all of my clothes that would finally get washed uh, when I would come home. <laughs> and after the turkey was consumed, after family uh, time was had, I would pull up, uh, pack up my Volkswagen Scirocco. I had kissed my parents and I would almost get my keys into the ignition before it would start. My mom would have this list of warnings that she would give me. Concerns, maternal love expressed with concern. She would go through her list. If you get tired, make sure to pull over. If you get hungry, you can pull over and get some food to eat. Make sure not to speed. And the list would go on and on and on. And then, of course, the very last one would be, make sure to call me when you get there, right? This was before cell phones. I'm sure that would be on the list too. But you would think now that I'm 42 and I've been living on my own for two and a half decades that... She doesn't feel the need to share that list of concerns, Uh, but she still does, as if I don't know what to do if I get hungry. So wait, there's food in these buildings on the side of the highway? Uh, Paul, as we see in this uh, letter, he's wrapping up his message to the church of Ephesus. He is winding it down, and I almost hear Paul with that same tone of concern Hey, before you go, I want you to know something. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6 is, before before I let you go here, I want you to know you need to be prepared. As we have walked through Ephesians, we have talked about how there's two different halves of this letter. The first half is exploring what happens when we encounter the gospel of Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. And the second half has been our response. What does a transformed life actually look like? And I believe Paul is ending his letter 
with this concern because he believes as I do, when the gospel actually takes root in our hearts and lives, there will be an enemy at work to undercut that transformation. So don't worry, this isn't gonna get super weird or heavy. I just wanna spend some time talking about Satan. We'll, in, we'll enter the laugh track later. Um, <laughs> I know it's <laughs> when we think about the trends that we have, uh, when we hear from historians, theologians, and sociologists, one of the things that they have noted is that our culture, by and large, have parted ways with the idea of the devil and even in evil in itself. Actually, a professor, Columbia professor, Andrew Del Banco, he actually wrote a book 14 years ago. It was named The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the sense of evil. In Del Banco, he argues that in contemporary America, uh, the devil and the evil that, de- that the devil represents are stranded between two different tendencies. There's the liberal tendency to explain away the heinous acts in this world as just a part of bad social luck, part of the bad, a, a bad system. And fundamentalists on the other side, they they have a tendency to demonize other people, making them the enemy. And and in the chasm between that is this this departure of actually believing that there is an enemy at work in this world. This is a massive departure from our historic perspective, but especially as Christians. For example, St. Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, Reinhold Niebuhr, Martin Luther King Jr. all saw Satan as a force that, and this is the quote, that exploits our deficient love, our potential for envy, and our malice, our destruction of creation. When we cease to believing, being able to imagine and name this evil, this author says it will have truly gained mastery over us. So with all of our advancement and all of our intellect, all the answers that we have, oftentimes we are stuck with this existential question of how in the world does evil exist and is so prevalent here and now? And the answers that are afforded by our culture seem oftentimes incredibly thin. Yet, if there's an enemy as the Bible describes, we will only be able to flourish and live well if we become aware of that darkness that's present in our own hearts, in our homes, in our community. So at the end of this letter, uh, it helps us break down what does this actually look like? What does the devil actually do? Jesus actually answers this in John 10.10, when he said, clearly he said this, the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come so that you may have life, and life to the full. That right there is the struggle. Right, that right there is the battle. It's the battle of experiencing life and life flourishing to the fullest and an enemy who wants to rob it, to steal it, to destroy it. And Paul here with almost this concern, this paternal concern says, I want you, if you are gonna be walking this gospel out as a church, you need to be aware of this struggle. And this is what he says. He says, take 
your stand against the devil's schemes. That, that word schemes, that little Greek word there's translated, uh, it's where we get our word method from. It's, it's a word that means strategy, this scheme. It's a very specific, carefully laid out plan. And in this context, it's this plan to rob you of life, of joy. It's the scheme, the strategy to close the human heart off from the regenerative work of Jesus. There is a system at work in our lives and our society that demonize, dehumanize, and devalue people. And when that takes place, the enemy is succeeding. So what is that scheme? What is the devil up to? Well, the name devil literally means to be an accuser, to be a slanderer. So this is his scheme. It's to lie. It's to accuse. It's to slander. A slander is when someone's identity is being attacked. And someone is seeking to redefine who one truly is. That is the enemy's scheme for you and for me and for God's people. To slander, to accuse, to deconstruct the true identity of who we are. Christian counselor John White, he wrote a book where he explained in his perspective how the devil worked. He explained it in this beautiful analogy. He said, um, if you were to go to a piano and if you were to lift open the lid and if you were to scream out a note, something weird happens that whatever note it is that you just sang out, a string, the string that is tuned to the same note will begin to vibrate. It'll begin to sound off, almost like this, this sense of connection between the voice that was spoken into it and the capacity of that note to reverberate. He believes that that is a picture for what the enemy does in our life. The scheme of the enemy is to open up the soul of the individual and through accusations activate lies that are at work in us. So in pastoral care and counseling with individuals for years, what I've known to be true is that many of us have this accusatory lie that has followed us for years and years, that undercuts our true identity. And it can oftentimes, that, that lie can be caught up in just a single word, fraud, unlovable, not enough. Last week, a friend said the word imposter, wicked, failure. The accuser's scheme is not, not obvious enough to alert us that it's actually happening, but oftentimes whispers accusations that somehow that hums a, a note inside of us. So what do we do with that? Like a mother giving parting advice, Paul tells the community loving instruction. And the instruction was to be prepared, to be aware of this. Um, and Paul does that through a, a very odd picture. He gives a picture of a soldier. Now, I know many of us are leery of uh, blending of Christianity and militarism. Uh, but I think, just think about it for a second. Where was Paul in this time as he wrote this letter? Many people believe that Paul was still in prison, 
there in Rome. And so what was before him every single day? It was a soldier. And Paul, as he was looking at this soldier, began to think about what the Christian needs to be equipped with. And he flips things upside down. He says this, Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. Our calling here is, is, it's a subtle nuance, but we have to see this. This section of scripture is beginning to tell us to not be strong, but be strong in the Lord. The emphasis is in the Lord and in his mighty power. For us to be faithful as Christ's church, we need to not pursue uh, our culture's notion of power. Rugged individualism is not going to cut it. Instead, we need to be deeply rooted in Jesus, connecting to Jesus, relying upon his power to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. But Paul goes on to say in verse 13, therefore then, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. That idea of putting on the full armor, that idea is meant for us to be active and ongoing, repeated every single day. Every single day a soldier would have to get equipped to put on that armor. So it is with us following and knowing Jesus. For us as the church, we need to put on this armor every single day. But did you notice the commandment at the end? After putting on this armor, our calling is to stand, to stand. Instead of the church being called to go and attack, go and find the fault, go and find that cultural war that we are engaged in, it's not our call. And our call is also not to retreat, to get away in comfortable places where we're, we're removed from the pain of this world. Instead, our call is to stand to stand in the face of opposition and injustice, to stand for the rights of any child of God who's been made to feel less than, to stand in the middle of systems of evil and tyranny, to stand in the face of persecutions and of difficulty. God strengthens us and equips us so that we can remain, so that we can stand. Our calling is the, the calling to, with, with courage and faith, to remain our posture in the midst of anxiety and fear and in contention. It's to be fully present in the face of opposition. I think the world needs to see the church living out our faith in a different way, not by retreating to our comfortable places of sameness. And not by seeing the church with combative posture going into this world, looking for a fight at any turn. Instead, we need to enter into this world fueled by Christ's presence, fortified by a soul force, so that we can with all courage and all love stand in the midst of this world. And Paul goes on to describe what this spiritual armor really looks like. He goes on to talk about what we actually have in Jesus. And Paul is using this militant 
violent imagery and begins to flip it upside down, kind of sharing a, a surprising kingdom that we're a part of. And notice what the Christian's equipment is. It's to stand firm with the belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, with feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, to take up a shield of faith, to have a helmet of salvation, and to have a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're not called to go into this world with weapons of this world, but we're provided in its place truth, righteousness, peace. We're equipped with faith. We've been given salvation. And these are more than words. These are spiritual equipment fortifying our lives. The Christian must learn to use these equi- this equi- equipment so that we can stand in this world and in conflict and in systems that need to be undone. And I, as I have spent this past week studying this, uh, this list of the different armor that we have in Jesus, two pieces stood out in particular that I think are central to the soldier's uh, armor. Central for us in our calling today, for our well-being and for our calling to be the church, it's the first and it's the last things that are mentioned. What are these two things? Well, first, it's a belt. Belts seem not crucial, right? But belts hold everything together. I remember clearly when I was in high school, I was at some camp and we were, all the, all the boys were alone and we had to talk with just the men the staff of this camp and all of us there. And I remember a guy was talking through uh, this, uh, this passage and began to talk about how, you know, we downplay the, the role of a belt, but what happens, this big burly man, like kind of machismo man was talking about, like the militant soldier, and he says, but what happens when we lose our belt? And he took off his belt and his pants fell down to his ankles, which is the reason why many of us don't send our kids to camp, Right? <laughs> but he's like, you think I'm ready to fight now? And the answer is no. But of course, even more for a soldier in the Roman days, is the belt actually held everything together. All of the equipment tied onto the belt. So without it, everything's going to fall apart. And what is the belt that Paul is describing here? Well, the belt is that of truth. Truth actually holds everything together. Without that belt of truth, things begin to fall apart. And secondly, what was the other thing, the last thing that Paul mentioned? Well, it's the sword. Notice it's the only actual weapon. Out of that whole armor, it's the only weapon in it. It's the only offensive piece. And it's God's word. Now, two words are most commonly used when we see the word sword in the Bible. It's either one depicts this really large sword, which you probably imagine in whatever medieval movie in your mind that you can just uh, take into battle. But the second word that's commonly used in the Bible is this word that describes a small dagger meant only in close proximity when someone's attacking you. That's actually the word that's being used here. There's an enemy that draws close to our lives. He does not attack from a distance but does so close to us, close enough to hear a whisper, a lie. And what do we have at our disposal? In this armor that is held together by God's truth, and we have been equipped 
with God's word. We see this so clearly when the enemy attacks us in our life, how much we need to know that there's truth to rely on, how much we need scripture to be able to to hold us together, to be able to ward off the lies of the enemy. We even see this in Jesus' life. He demonstrated this when he was tempted in the desert. These temptations were subtle attacks on Jesus' identity. They were accusations. And interesting, if you were to look at at the, the way in which Jesus responds to each of those attacks, he quotes scripture after each one. Even upon the cross, when Jesus was probably experiencing another temptation when people said, if you really are the son of God, get down from this cross. If you really are the son of God, call down angels. And again, Jesus responds with scripture. When life squeezed Jesus, what poured out of him was God's word. And if that was how Jesus remained fortified in his life for faithful living, how much more should we depend on God's truth? How much more should we seek to have God's word in us so when life squeezes us, that's what comes out. When accusations come our way, we can rely on God's truth. When the, the enemy opens up the lids of our souls and begins to whisper lies to us, hoping that a string within our soul gets activated, there's already a song playing from God's truth and God's word that's playing with truth and beauty So there's no space for the enemy's lies to ring at all. So friends, I'm curious. I'm curious as we finish this sermon, as we finish this series, I wonder if just Paul was here, if he would end the same way this sermon as he did this letter, if he would ask you if what accusations are ringing in your heart today? What is the lie that you've been tempted to believe about yourself That's harder to shape. I think what Paul would give us, what Jesus Christ wants us to know, is that we can be equipped with truth. That God knows you fully. He loves and accepts you. All of you. That God will not let you down. That you are safe in his hands. That he's trustworthy, that he's faithful, that God is loyal. And although lies and accusations can come at you, there's a truth that's deeper in you and about you than anything else, and that is you are loved with a relentless love, a love that lasts forever. And that truth is more a part of you than you actually even realize. This, my friends, is the truth that holds it all together the truth that we need in this moment, and the truth that will actually teach us how in the midst of conflict, in the midst of uncertainty, the midst of doubt, this truth will actually teach us how to stand and stand together.